Hi, I'm Samuel. And I'm Bentley. And this is the Review Podcast. Podcast. And today we are going to actually take it back to the original thesis of the podcast where we'd be going looking at classic movies, things that are considered the canon, and determining whether or not they really hold up under modern movie making and audience sensibilities. So we're actually going to cover the winner of Best Picture in the year of 1960. We're going to cover The Elevator. (laughs) Wait. It's not The Elevator. Wait. It's the oh, the apartment. apartment. The apartment. Yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, that's an excellent preface to my half of the review of this. But yeah, uh, it's called The Apartment. But there's a, a thrilling, thrilling movie. To be <laughs> fair, there are a lot of elevators. I mean, multiple. Although he lives in a walk-up. He lives in a walk-up, he lives though. In he lives in like a 1920s walk-up. Uh, I think it's even older. One of the things I love about this movie, it's the last uh, purely black and white movie to win Best Picture. Uh, this is the 60th anniversary of it, and he lives, although it's got all this mid-century uh, fun when he goes to work, right? He's in this very typical New York City, you know, international architecture office building, but then he goes home, you know, to this old grungy apartment building where his room is decorated with things almost from 50 years before that. I don't think it's the 1920s. I think it's the turn of the last century. He has two Tiffany lamps, which at the time, in 1960, you could find a Tiffany lamp at a garage sale, right? They, they just were not beloved because it wasn't the style of kind of modernist, clean, sleek, latter 20th century. And now, those lamps would be worth $30,000. Yeah. But he is clearly portrayed, this is Jack Lemmon, one of the main characters, he's just a single guy... In the city, living in an apartment. And I don't know anybody like that. Hey, 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 hey. <laughs> the single part doesn't apply anymore, so, you know. Good for you. It's, it's, so it, it's got Jack Lemmon as C.C. Baxter. Um, and it hits a little close to home. It's just like, it's, it's weird because he's clearly drawn as such a nebbish loser at the start of this. Hey, 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 hey. And, and spoilers <laughs> for a film that came out in 1960. He doesn't really end in a very different place. Yeah, uh, he, I, yeah I think that's... We might be jumping the gun on this a little bit, but yeah. my frustration with this movie is that there are so many great individual scenes. There is a classic sense of Hollywood dialogue back yes. and forth. There are some yep. absolutely magnificent exchanges that come only because you have to focus on the script because you have nothing else that you could possibly distract the audience with at this right. time. Like You right. have to give them... Characters that they care about, and and they're so close. They're so close. They're so close to um, it, but it it goes. The third act of the film really starts, in my opinion, like maybe halfway through the film's runtime. Like the climactic, most yes, scary right. moment of yes. the film yeah, that's right. happens, and then the whole rest of the movie is dealing with this climactic moment. Yeah, but let's pause there. Yeah, I'm let's sorry, not, just jump all around. Way to the end. I would like to just say that I was thrilled to finally watch this because, yes, the thesis of the uh, podcast is not just that we're going to re-watch uh, things that, say, I watched 20 or 30 years ago before Samuel uh, was of age, 
But there are definitely things that are on the canon that I still haven't seen yet, and The Apartment is one of them. It didn't just win for Best Picture. It won five Oscars. And nominated for... For e- several more, like several seven more. or eight. Yeah. I like Jack Lemmon a lot. Uh, he won Best Actor for this. Billy Wilder is considered Hollywood royalty. Right before he does this, he does Some Like It Hot with Marilyn Monroe and Jack Lemmon and Tony Curtis. Yep. Which I love. Love that movie. So I came into watching The Apartment with all of these high expectations, looking forward to it. And one of the things that I think is frustrating with The Apartment is that it is so close. And what I really could see is that when you take Jack Lemmon away from somebody who can really counter his very nebbish mannerisms right his real nerdy fussiness right like the odd couple is the perfect movie for him because it puts him with mathow who balances him out and doesn't take any of his fussiness seriously you know he's just like look dude get a life (laughs) and that was such a successful pairing that i think lemon and mathow are in like seven movies together over the course of their uh, careers and I have liked Lemon in other things. He, he does a war movie where he's interesting. But again, he's not the main character. And unfortunately, in the apartment, he's the main guy. You have to really focus on, okay, does this guy get it? Is he growing? What choices is he making? And how are other people reacting to him? Which brings us to Shirley MacLaine. Yes, who I would make many, many choices for. Um... <laughs> One of the first... Magic Pixie Girls. Maniac Pixie Dream Girls. We're close. You're close. I was, clo- You're I close. was as close as, as you close were. As I was to the title of the movie. <laughs> so, so Shirley MacLaine here plays Fran Kublik, and she is, like, uh, this is not a diss, this is not a knock. She's clearly who Zoe Deschanel has yes. watched and pointed and went, that, I want to do that. Yes. Like, she's got all these little quirks, she's making decisions on the fly, She's just very impulsive and very poetic in her language. But, but and, standing uh, on her own. But standing I mean, on her she, own. Yeah, I don't she, mean to minimize that at she all. She's absolutely presented from the very get-go as, you know, modern. Competent, good at her job. And, you know, able to deal with the very heavily male-dominated uh, workforce. You know, I don't think there's any way to really read what her age is. You do find out some of her biographical information very late in the movie, but... From the get-go, you know, she is independent. Yeah. And and no offense to her or her character, but I, I, I mean this is a compliment. I don't think her age really matters here. No, no, you don't, it doesn't. It doesn't. The, what matters but she's is supposed the, to be an ingenue to some degree. Well, what matters is the power dynamics that are yes. so out of whack. That, yes. that we, you know, you, you can hear about in the news and the opinion pieces at this point. And we should touch on, I mean, again, we are two straight white guys, but, you know, I think... The politics of this movie hold up really well. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. We, we were discussing this as we were watching it. There is a massive amount of this movie that holds up very well post the Me Too movement. There is a lot of out-of-whack power dynamics between people in relationships. Uh, there's a lot of workplace misconduct. Yep. It, it Well, that's the whole point. That's the plot. Yeah, the whole <laughs> plot is workplace misconduct. So, like, it's... Uh, again, I keep jumping the gun here, getting to the weighty subject That's matter, okay. but, but it. it's it it holds up really well, and the women all have agency. I mean, the women, 
it could be argued they are the only ones who are advancing the plot. The various correct. F- uh, women characters of the film are the ones who are doing stuff yes. that actions occur. That's it's correct. all the guys who are just like, oh, we'd like to keep everything the way it's been. What's wrong with the way things have been? We've just been taking anonymous women back to Buddy Boy's apartment and having sex with them. What's wrong with that? Right. And it is the multiple women characters in the film who make choices that disrupt that status quo enormously. Yes. yes. Um, you have, uh, obviously, Shirley MacLaine as Fran Kublik, but you also have Hope Holiday as Mrs. Margie McDougal, McDougal, who I believe is McDougal, which is, I think that's the secretary. Yes. Um, yeah. And then you've also got uh, Naomi Stevens as Mrs. Mildred Dreyfus, the uh, wife of the Jewish doctor who lives yep. next to C.C. Baxter. Yep. I, I, and, and they are the ones who are making decisions and giving speeches and delivering the moral of the movie and yeah. and it's it's well his secretary right is the one who makes the bad guy face you know justice yeah she's and, the only one who but, holds him accountable but here's where the movie is close and yet doesn't quite get there right so i mean the the scene in which the secretary tells the big boss's wife about what what has been going on which leads to him getting kicked out of his home and and you know you know ending this mm-hmm. charade that happens off camera yeah you, you don't see that happen yeah. even though the secretary and the wife are meeting in midtown manhattan and it, we could do with we like we could easily do with that scene yeah and we could do with like one or two less of of cc making spaghetti with a tennis racket yeah, like, yeah. So, so you commented and i want to hear you expand <laughs> on this you commented that this feels like a prototype of later better romantic comedies yes. like they've got as we keep saying they have some of the pieces they're almost yes. there but they're not quite so what's the piece it's missing from better, later romantic comedies that refine this formula? Well, it'll come back to what you have been getting towards with the character development. So as somebody in Generation X who really got a lot of romantic comedies in the 80s, you know, Nora Ephron really kind of cements the formula. I don't really consider things before the 1980s to be pure romantic comedies. There were certainly romances, right? There were there were these really heavy drama-filled things like an affair to remember. And then you had comedy kind of sneak its way into some other things that were kind of caper movies, right? You had things like Charade, which I love. I guess you could call Breakfast at Tiffany's a prototypical... I was actually going to go with Roman Holiday. Roman, Roman Holiday. Holiday's Roman... ending is something new, modern, modern like uh, it, exactly, comedy exactly. would ever do. Right. I love Roman Holiday. That is absolutely uh, a big part of the blueprint. But it really gets codified in the 80s and then in the 90s. And now there's a whole freaking channel devoted to it, right? All yeah. those Har- Hallmark movies that it's we It's just make, a formula, man. You put it into the thing. Chunk, chunk, It's a formula. So I think Roman Holiday does more for the formula than the apartment. But the apartment is clearly working the same set of characters and events, and it's still working that romantic comedy arc. Right down to, you know, the the running to reunite, 
right? That's just a complete trope. It happens at Breakfast at Tiffany's. It happens in this movie. One of the characters starts running to get to the other one at the very end of the movie. It happens at the end of When Harry Met Sally. It happens all the time. It, you know, it happens running through the airport at the end of Love, actually. It's just ridiculous. Yeah. That's the only way Americans get their exercise, is running at the end of a romantic comedy. Okay, that's a really funny line. That's, that's really good. Uh, Wait, goodness, I have to go! Thank goodness we're... Oh, God, no! <laughs> Wait, is it snowing or oh, raining out? Lord. It's Ohio, so yes. I have to um, go. No. So, but we haven't. We keep talking around him. We keep talking about the villain of this play, played by the man who was the father on My Three Sons. All of his wholesomeness is probably not going to mean anything to your generation because it's disappeared. But to my generation, we were watching reruns of this guy in Disney movies, right? Just the re- most ridiculous kind of Disney Channel stuff. And he was the father on My Three Sons. And he was even the model for the Captain Marvel character that now, today, people call Shazam. I mean, he was as white bread as you could get. But Billy Wilder directs Fred McMurray in two movies where he's pretty evil. Oh, yeah. There's not a lot behind his eyes. That's what's great, is that he's got... This winning smile, and yeah. he's so clean cut, and he's all put yeah. together. But I'm going to steal a line from one of my favorite pieces of fiction that I that I engaged with last year, which is he's got a smile that doesn't reach his eyes. He's nice. just he's he's so when he first shows up on the scene, literally, C.C. Baxter has been called into his office because he is the head honcho. He is yeah. the boss. He yeah. is the guy who is in charge. And he is talking to Cece about this, you know, this basically Airbnb operation he's been running <laughs> out of his apartment, letting the other, you know, executives, middle managers, you know, bang their, their side chicks yep. at his apartment. Yep. And Fred McMurray is, is just reading him the riot act. And I'm like, God, we're 30 minutes into this movie. That was short. Yeah. And finally, through very well-written dialogue and very subtle acting and excellent even staging based on where he is in the room, you start to realize, oh, wait, he doesn't want Cece to stop. He wants in. He wants in. (laughs) And it's so great to see, again, like my only reference point for him is Shazam. I love that character. I I love all the different interpretations of him. So there's Captain Marvel, the big red cheese, just going, say, can I bring my side chick to your place on Thursday, CC? (laughs) There's a good chap. Like, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. And he's so great in this really lecherous, gross role where... You know, it's the text. It's not implied. The text of the film tells you he has gone through this office like a hot knife through butter. Yes. And he has treated all of these women as disposable. Using nothing more than his good looks, his suit, and the power of his office. Yeah, that third one especially. And he's, he's... One of our first scenes with him in passing, I can't remember if it's before or after his scene with Cece, but he actually slaps Shirley MacLaine's ass as he's coming off the elevator. Is that him? I I thought it was him. Is it another one of the middle managers? No, I thought it was the guy who calls him Buddy Boy. Was it Ray Walston? No, it wasn't Ray Walston. It was the other guy. Was it David Lewis? Yeah. Okay. That guy with the mustache. Sorry, they all blend together. (laughs) There's a scene where all of them are in C.C. Baxter's office after he gets promoted. There's like five of them. I'm just like, God, revenge of middle management. Yeah. So it's also, this is, you know, an indictment of that kind of corporate culture. So for everybody who loves Mad Men, you know, I think there's something to watch in the apartment. I do think it's worth your time to watch 
Um, but I don't know that I will ever watch it again. Well, it was only a dollar as well. So if it's a dollar, <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's worth your money and your time, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to throw it back into the canon. Yeah, like, that, that's where There's I'm... plenty of movies I'd say worth your money and your time, but like, I don't care if they survive for future generations. Like, right, right. Like, you know. Yeah, so I do like the way the movie is shot. I do like a lot of those uh, other characters. It is fascinating to watch Frederick Murray uh, play this role uh, because he was such a good guy in every other role. In fact, he said that this role was what convinced him to never play a bad guy again because people would come up to him. Like women would come up to him on the street after watching The Apartment and say, you know, how dare you do that filthy movie? Because the whole movie is about sex, you know? And he couldn't take the heat. Fred, come on, man. Grow a pair. That is dude. Anyway, what a... So the I'm quest- not going to play a bad guy ever again. So the question is, when Fred is clearly a heel, you know, a snake, yeah. you know, when he's clearly using, like, boss language to get out of any kind of responsibility for what happens, okay... I mean, I think we can say what the plot point is, but maybe... You, What's the plot point? The big plot point. Maybe we should stay away from it, big since we point? want people to watch. Anyway. We've already spoiled this whole thing, dude. We already talked about how he gets outed by his secretary to well, his that, wife. But, like, but we're not talking about the big thing that starts the third act. We can stay away from that. Let's I don't know, that. man. It's pretty messed up. <laughs> I feel like we almost should include it in here. And I'm not joking, folks. I'm not mocking. We might want to include it in here as a trigger warning. Cause okay. like that's fair. So here's the thing, folks. The thing that kicks off the third act about halfway through the runtime of the film is a uh, very scary, a very well done, very tastefully shot uh, suicide attempt. Yeah. Where Sh- Shirley, Shirley. McLean overdoses on sleeping pills, something very common, mm-hmm. uh, not at all outside the realm of our imaginings here in 2020. You know, 60 years later, this is still something people do. And there is an entire scene, perhaps the best scene in the movie, devoted to bringing her out of this, seeing if she's alive, keeping her conscious so she doesn't fall asleep again, uh, treating for shock. Well, and, and a lot of things are happening around it. Yes. Right? It's not, I don't even consider it just a scene. I mean, it, it's like a 20-minute segment of the movie. Yeah. And the doctor from down the hall does such a good job. He is nominated uh, for... Uh, Jack uh, Christian. Yeah. Is, for Dr. Um, Dreyfus. Yep, yep. He doesn't win, but it is where he, in saving her, has the time to make Cece face, you know, this system that he's set up. You know, he, the doctor doesn't really know what the players are responsible for, but he thinks Cece is the reason that she has made this attempt. And so he is delivering judgment in yes. making Cece face all of this. Even though, you know, the responsibility is a little misguided. And, and, but, and so now we can get kind of to what we've been dancing around, our complaints with this movie. Cece hasn't learned anything from this. No. Cece doesn't become, like, more uh, driven. He doesn't become... He defends Frederick Murray. He, he doubles covers, down. He covers for his boss's ass. So that the system can continue. So that the apartment Airbnb can continue. What It's what, mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling, and it brings the movie to a screeching halt to the point where... To continue the metaphor, you kind of go through the windshield. Like, it's just like, okay, well, if he's not going to change based on this, there's nothing that's going to change him. And then they try and go back to some of the tropes of a romantic comedy. You know, they go back to the meet-cute part, 
where she is recovering from a suicide attempt in his apartment. She's not left, and he's doing the spaghetti strain through the tennis racket thing. And you're like, this, this is... This well, is he, out of order. This he is can, really weird. He can do the spaghetti strain through the tennis thing. He can do the meet cute stuff, but the fact that he's doing this while all at the same time literally coaching her on how to lie about what has happened. Yeah. Oh yeah. my god. That might be the only part of the, yeah. the, the gender and sexual politics of this that don't hold up is that your protagonist even as the movie wants you to start to like him and root for him, yeah. is like coaching a woman on how to lie about her suicide attempt so that yeah. her her yeah. abuser gets off scot free. Yeah. Like yeah. it it that that part of the movie just sucks the wind out. He of insists that she talk to him on the phone. She insists he insists that Shirley MacLaine talked to Fred McMurray on the phone. And I was I mean, just flabbergasted. <laughs> I'm just flabbergasted. It's it's so yeah. it's so off putting that scene of her recovering from her suicide attempt because I really want the action to focus in on her, and she almost seems kind of incidental to this. And, and uh, I know I disagree. I think that she does some really important work while she's lying in bed. You know, he's trying to get her to play gin rummy to distract her. Um, but she stays on point. I think it's one of the great okay. things about her character is she's talking about how she got to this point, and that's when she gives the biographical information. Shirley does a great job in this. You know, I, before watching this, of course, I grew up with her being a, kind of a mature actress. Uh, at one point, she even plays an ex-first lady. Uh, I watched that movie twice. <laughs> and she's a great actress, but to see her this young, but still having some of that real weight... Yeah. That humanity that's was fair. really nice to see. And, yeah. and But that's what's frustrating is once we get out of this passage where she's recovering in his apartment and then like her brother-in-law comes and whisks her away, even the brother-in-law delivers some justice to Cece, right? Yeah. He's getting all the messages that the universe should be giving him. Yeah. And yet, we go back to the office building. He gets the precious, you know, office with the windows and then the two main characters, Shirley and uh, Jack Lemmon, meet again outside the elevator. Yeah. And she has completely, you know, gone to the boss because, you know, he got kicked out of his house and now he's available. And she went right back to him. And, you know, CeCe Baxter's trying to talk about how great all of this was because he got his stupid office. Yeah. And there's nothing authentic in that exchange whatsoever. You could play it with them not being warm towards each other. Believe me, when you see an ex after some period of time, you know, that's really a high wire act. That is a really weird feeling and there are lots of things you can do with that interaction. And that scene does not deliver any of those things. So to bring in, I like that you've brought in personal experience here because i would like to speak to one element of the movie this idea that because they've shared this traumatic experience and that he has brought her you know helped bring her back from the brink of death and 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 played gin rummy you know played gin like they have shared this this scary very scary experience where adrenalines are high emotions are high you can get through those scenarios with somebody and think that you have a lot of connection and a lot of feelings and a lot of whatever but that's not the test the test is okay can you continue to interact with this person for a week 
can you live with this person? Mm-hmm. Like that's mm-hmm. not, mm-hmm. There, there's a great piece of writing. I've, you're never going to believe what I'm about to reference, but in Brian K. Vaughn's Why the Last Man, mm-hmm. there's a character who proposes to another character because they've been through so many life or death experiences. And the other character goes, no, you're, you're my friend, but this, these don't unite us. These are just really high tension moments where emotions get really high but you have to decide, can you wake up next to me every yes. single day? Yeah. And it's like... Yeah. The friend zone is very different well, oh, from being a romantic lifetime partner. Well, and, and just traumatic experiences don't, don't really solve anything if the core of the relationship is not right. there. Right. You know? And, you know, I have, uh, in the past two years, I have dealt with two such similar situations. Not nearly as dire as this, thank goodness, but... You, you just you it, you lose perspective, and I so that might be one of the parts of the movie that I really I really I like, but also even with modern romantic comedies, you can kind of see like okay, is this relationship gonna work past the credits? Is this past gonna the work? kiss in the rain? Is this gonna work past the oh darling, I love you, run at each other, yay! Like yeah, yeah. I don't know, I don't know if Cece's <laughs> got enough like. Really? You're going to stay in Cece's apartment and have spaghetti dinners till the end of time? Well, she walks in after her run, you know, to, to reunite with him, and he's literally moving. It's not that they will live in this apartment. It is, this is one of the few genuine things that the Cece character does is he's like, okay, this apartment is, you know, uh, stained with all of these memories. I have to get out of here. But he has no idea what his next job is, no idea where he's living He's just packing boxes to go somewhere. There's really no more Hollywood ending than that. <laughs> you know, like, I have no idea where I'm going to put these boxes tomorrow. But he's moving out, and she decides that's going to work. You know, <laughs> she doesn't offer to help pack. They just sort of get back together. There's not even a kiss. Is how weird he gets this kissed feels. on the forehead. He gets kissed on the forehead yeah, but, after her brother-in-law decks him, and he's near nearly passing out. Yeah, yeah this yeah. is such a <laughs> such a ridiculously like New York movie. Every character who does not have a first and last name, they all talk like this. Well, there's that they too. They all wait, sound wait, wait. like Harley Quinn. Hold, hold on, hold on. Wait, I'm sorry. Time, time, did I get away I, from the thing? No, no. I wanted to. I say, got distracted by the brother-in-law who's like, "Hey, yeah. why are you tweeting my sister like this?" Hey, yeah. Like it's just yeah, yeah, ridiculous. Yeah. It is pretty ridiculous. But I did want to say on the the end of romantic comedy, and you know, I want people to know that other movies have done this well. Yeah. Right? And I'm not actually advocating for the Hallmark movies. You know, I'm tired of the formula myself. I used to watch a lot of romantic comedies. I really don't anymore. Uh, I find them uh, pretty frustrating. But I'll tell you, there's a movie that has some real uh, depth to it. It's got great characterization. And the end has one of those meets where (laughs) it's the way we were. And don't laugh. Don't laugh. That was a huge movie in the early 70s to people like your Aunt Amanda. And yet, even though it's Barbara Streisand and Robert Redford and really looks dated now, it does the honest work. And so they break up, right? Uh, Because they can't kind of solve their personality and their cultural differences. And then they show them, years later, accidentally meeting on a New York City street. And they and they talk like real people, and and you can tell they still have affection for each other. They, you know, they're friendly. They're like, hey, you know, I'm happy to see you. And then they go their separate ways. No, because guess what? Most of the time in human relationships, 
That's what happens. And that's what's healthiest. <laughs> right. Rather than staying in a relationship that is unhealthy, unrewarding, mm-hmm. uh, or even abusive. Mm-hmm. Ding, ding, ding. This man wins the prize. <laughs> yes, at 52, almost 53, I have figured this out. Figured this out. Uh, it's, it's, I, oh my God. Woo! So the apartment, the elevator, whatever the hell this movie's called, it's good. It's it in fact good. It is quite good. good. And it's incredibly well written. And I would actually really like to see it reworked with a couple of script tweaks as a stage play. I think that'd be really interesting. Oh, yeah, it would, it would work really uh, well. No, obviously my first love is film and the film medium, but this is a rare movie where I see it and I'm like, I want to see how they would stage this across a two-dimensional well, plane. I do think it's like watching a, a play, and one thing I'd like to say uh, to the modern audience, so we're basically saying this is worth you watching because it has a lot of modern sensibilities. I also liked it as an old guy. Because it harkens back to the early days of television, which were nothing but filmed stage productions. It's how, like, Paul Newman gets started. Literally, when this movie is made, Playhouse 90 is one of the most popular things on television. And that was one of the best anthology shows where they're just showing you a play. Yep. And it's this movie is lit that way. So if you want to get a sense of sort of early television, watch The Apartment. Yeah. It is well written. It is well directed. I think the issue is pacing and character development, but I would still recommend you watch it. Uh, you you stream it however you'd like to consume it. But in the canon, no, I would say yeah, no. I, I think there are other movies that come later uh, that, I, that are worth. More. I think it's it's in that pile of films that we've reviewed sometimes where we say, yeah, this is. A, a building block to get to pieces of the canon. Right. And so it's kind of interesting in an almost film archaeological sense. Oh, yeah, which I love. But it, it's just like, we're trying to really get to what can you show people? What can you watch with a, an audience and say, hey, this is really important and good? So and go watch it, How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. Yeah, or Some Like It Hot, you know? Like, oh, go, oh, go oh, watch okay, that. Yeah, like, yeah. it's it's... <laughs> Go watch High Fidelity. It's been 20 years of High Fidelity, baby. If you think we're not doing another podcast on High Fidelity, you're crazy. Well, we did one on, like, all of those movies, but we should... No, it's High Fidelity time, baby. (laughs) It's High Fidelity. And you know what? You know what? I'm going to actually... I want to say this on air. Yeah. Because I think it'll be funny to see if we can actually get him on the podcast or not. I think we should include Uncle Bob. With High Fidelity. Oh. Because there is a scene in that film that he loves probably more than any other scene that's ever been committed (laughs) to film. And if we can't get him, like, just a little guest spot for 30 seconds to talk about that scene. Okay, fair enough. That might be really funny. But anyway. Well, so the the reason why Samuel is absolutely right to bring up High Fidelity is that movie is sort of nothing but... The main nerdy character facing the consequences of his choices. It that almost could movie. be a sequel to this. Yes, that's exactly because it right. starts with. There's a whole what, what's. Damn, we're about to do a high fidelity podcast. <laughs> okay, we can't do a high fidelity podcast. We're gonna do it now. But five second thing. <laughs> I love high fidelity because it starts. There's a whole prequel to High Fidelity that was never filmed that you will never see that doesn't yeah. exist, which is him getting the girl in a romantic comedy fashion. Yeah. Yes, and then and it then starts with the breakup. It sm- <laughs> starts with the breakup. <laughs> I 
freaking love High Fidelity. I do anyway, too. All right. I, I could watch that every week. Yeah, so, okay. I mean, you can watch The Apartment, but why just, why not watch High Fidelity? <laughs> Por que no los dos? <laughs> all right, I'm Bentley. And I'm Samuel. And this has been The Escalator. <laughs> no, wait. That wasn't even what I called it. I know. This has been the Review Podcast. Podcast.